ready to jump into the Bible? <laughs> You're like, yeah, all right, man, let's do this. Let's get into this. Well, um, here, here's, here's the intro. Uh, we have been covering the book of James all summer long. We are at the final two verses, the last two verses. But what I want to do is remind you of just the big topics that we've covered all the way from the beginning of the summer till now, and then we'll jump into these last two verses, and I think you'll enjoy the way James ends his, uh, his letter to the scattered church in this area. So first he tells us, consider trials and suffering joy because it bears fruit for you. You become perseverant. You, you build perseverance. You become mature. We want you to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word and God's direction in your life. He asks us to show mercy instead of being judgmental and to not show preference for the rich in the congregation. He asks us, let your faith be made alive through your deeds, that it doesn't live if there aren't deeds to accompany the faith that you have. He also urged us that we should use our tongue for blessing and not cursing and that it's like a wildfire either way. We will either set a wildfire of curses or blessing out on this earth with the things we speak. That we should seek true wisdom and not fall for false wisdom in our day. That we should not participate in oppression or structures of oppression. That we should have patience in the midst of suffering. And that we should put on display faithfulness through the prayers that we pray and not be double-minded in the things that we ask for. This is what he's covered all the way from the beginning until now. And now what I think you'll see is just the natural flow of James's thinking. He says, if you can't do all of this. I think we have this little picture. I wanted to show you this. There's like a little checklist. I don't know if that's up there. Maybe that didn't get up there. So, so what I want you to, to, to see, these are, this is a little, uh, like a sample of the things that I just read out to you. And I think what happens is when we go through this book, sometimes we get caught up thinking of it like this. Like it's like, okay, okay, I got to have, I got to have joy in trials, check. All right, I need to, I need, okay, I need to be a doer and not just a hearer. Got to check that thing. Bless and not curse. Ah, I cursed the other day. I got to bless more. Double out that blessing so I can drop off the curse part of it. Check that box. Seek wisdom, right? Like you can think of this almost as this thing. But if you try to do all of these things, if you try, if you try to be perfect in all of these things, I guarantee you, you're going to fall short. And so what happens in here is that James is aware of this. He says there's this, this thing that if you can't live up to this checklist of things, if you can't do all of this, if you eventually fall off, if you eventually fall away, if you eventually wander from the truth, I'm going to have a fail-safe for you. I'm going to have a process of restoration, a safety net built right into the midst of that so that the community knows what to do because trying to live up to all of these things is hard. That's why over and over again, you've heard me say, we want you to think of this, reiterate it over and over, we want you to think of this as a process of progress and not some idea that we're demanding perfection, that you do all of these things 100% now. Well, James said it, you gotta do it. And if you think of this as a list of things to accomplish instead of life-giving principles, instead of wisdom, and it becomes really daunting trying to accomplish it, doesn't it? And I'll be the first to admit that this is, this is intimidating. You start reading through this list, and if you don't live up to it perfectly, you, you, you can start to go, uh, you know, I'm just going to give up on this. It's, like, it's just not even possible. And you almost become, it's like a weight that you bear over the top of this. 
And what I want us to understand is that none of us are going to do this perfectly. In fact, we have to understand that all of us at some point or other are going to wander. Every single one of us. There isn't a person in this room. There isn't a person who's ever stood on this stage. There isn't a person who has led us through music. There isn't a person who has ever followed Jesus in their entire life that has not gone through a season of wandering away from God. And so it makes logical sense that we might need something or someone to help course correct us from time to time, bring us back into placement. And this is how James is going to use the last few strokes of his pen or quill or whatever it is that he's using during that time. He wants to help these believers see that it's God's, uh, God knows, one, I, I know you were going you were, you were to fall away. This isn't a surprise to God. In fact, when you look in the history of God's people, he's like, I, I know that that stuff is going to happen. You need to know that when members of the community get off course, that I have already anticipated that and I have built in a search and rescue party for them. And every single person is worth chasing after. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to James 5, 19 and 20. We're going to read these two verses. Then we're going to bring it to Jesus and come back. I do want to give you a quick warning while you're turning there. James 5, 19 and 20. Today's lesson is going to start real centered. Then it's going to get more abstract. And then I'm going to bring it down to some very, very practical things at the end. So stick with me through that abstract part. But I think it builds up what, what is actually happening here in James. So verse 19, James 5, 19 says this. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now the idea of turning a sinner from the error of their way sounds really good in writing, doesn't it? I mean, it even sounds simple, like, hey, whenever this happens, you know, just correct the error of their ways. Big, shouldn't, shouldn't be a big deal, right? But if you've ever walked this process, if you've ever actually been in a situation like this, what you know is that it's a long, arduous road, and there is a miles, miles, and miles of distance between a point of when you correct someone or a restoration taking place. Why? I mean, because... There's so many things that can go wrong between here and here. There's all kinds of temperaments that are working against each other. You have confrontation styles that don't always align up. There's the true aspect that one or the other might be wrong. People correct with the wrong heart all the time. People come at somebody and are wrong all the time. There's circumstantial possibilities that just make things awkward sometimes, not to mention the fact that every single one of us in this room is just a bunch of sinners. And we're trying to work it out together, correcting each other, when we're all kind of in this prone-to-wander state of mind. And so it's a hard road between realizing that someone needs to be corrected for the error of their ways and the actual restoration, between the wandering and the restoration. I want to give you three scenarios as we kick it off today. This is a, these are all three things that have happened to me, three moments wherein a correction took place. I was, um, the first one, I, I had um, left, my, I grew up in Arizona, a small town called Bullhead City, um, and I ran, uh, what I did is I, I had left and come back for like a summer or like a wedding, I can't remember what it was, but I ran into a former friend of mine who was a part of the youth group that I was a part of. I was just at an ATM getting cash out, this person happened to be in front of me, and as soon as I saw him, I'm like, oh, what's up, Chrissy, is 
good to see you. We start chatting, talking a little bit, and as we're having a conversation, just kind of assuming her life was the same as when I had left a couple years before, in terms of her interactions with church, she said, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't go to church. I don't, I don't really believe in God anymore. And my first inclination was shock, because this is literally what, like, one of those people who was the person, the most faithful, the most consistent, one of the people that no matter what happened was always there, always available, praying all the time, reading her Bible. It's one of those people that you could just trust, like as me, as the new guy coming in and out, you know, really struggling with coming to know Jesus. I always knew Christy was going to be there and on point. And so I decided, like, this is my moment. I'm going to encourage her, like, hey, you know what? In a very non-confrontational way, you know, I don't know what happened, but maybe it wasn't a good, the best way that they handled it. Or, you know what, have you tried some other churches? It might be a chance for you to check out. And she said, Eric, stop. I know what you're doing. I used to be one of you. And you're just trying to, like, find a way to, like, come around and try to get me back into church. Like, I, I get what you're doing. It's, it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, I'm like, well, the, you know, round one, I lost. Round two. But maybe, Chrissy, if you thought about it like this, and it's like, hey, I, I got to go. And she left. I mean, needless to say, that didn't work, right? It didn't go well. That, that moment, even as a friend and as somebody who was just kind of lightly trying to help someone, and I wasn't trying to do any formal kind of course correction. It was just, I saw my friend, and I wanted her to be back in the fold. The second thing here is there was this time that I was in charge of an, an adult Sunday school. There was four classes or so. We had a college ministry, two kind of Gen X age ones, and then um, uh, there was a, uh, like a, uh, a legacy group, like a, a seniors group that was on the other side. And the guy who, re- who taught in the seniors group, um, he was the former pastor who held my current position at that time. So he was the adults pastor, and then when he retired and they transitioned it to me, we would obviously have these conversations, and he had his way of doing it, I had my way of doing it, and naturally there would be confrontation between the two of us. And for the most part, we would just work it out. But then there was this moment. Like, man, I'm not, I can't let this, this one, this is the, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back. And I go into this situation like, man, I need to confront this guy about this. And so I work it up in my head because I'm going to say this and then he's going to have his like kind of, he's going to push back. And I'm going to come at him from this angle and I'm going to anticipate. Then he's probably going to say this and I'm going to do this. And then he's going to have to see that I was right the entire time. And I go in hot, like ready to have this conversation me and Doug, one-on-one, and he's looking at me, and I lay out all of the situation in front of him, and I think to him, you know, like with all of this, this is like momentum in there, it's like, so that's the way it is, and I already just don't even let him speak, like, and, and, and I know you're going to say blah, 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 and he just interrupts me, he says, I receive your rebuke, I'm like, what, wait, what? Th- that's like the last thing I expected, you what did you say? I receive your rebuke. I've thought about what you've said. I think you're right. I should have had that person go to you instead of telling them to just go forward with what it is. I, I'm sorry, and I will do it better next time. Nothing messes with your head more than an immediate <laughs> correction like that. Like, first of all, it's an oddly formal way. Pardon me, sir. I, re, I, re, I, I embrace your rebuke. What are you doing to me right now? And then he goes on just to kind of embrace the whole thing. I'll be honest, though, with you. I have repeated that phrase so many times because in that moment he taught me what it was to be a person who, when confronted, received the rebuke. And I've been in other situations now and just broke it down like that. As soon as I saw it coming, like, you know what, I'm wrong in this situation. 
I, I apologize, I receive your rebuke. You should try it sometime. It's crazy. <laughs> then let me give you the last one. So we got you a, a bad one, a good one. Let me give you not the ugly, but the complicated. I sat on a, uh, as a student representative, I was the leader at the college that I went to, um, a, an RA, and then one of the male leaders. And so in this um, situation, there was a, 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 like a gathering of three or four people to, uh, for a disciplinary situation that was taking place in the college. Um, now, I walk in, I don't know much about the situation, but you're supposed to have one student representative, one male, one female, and then there's four or so professors, and the dean obviously is sitting in the room too. As soon as I walk into the room, my heart just sinks because the person in the room is my friend. And all I'm thinking is that we weren't close. We weren't like really good friends, but definitely studied together. And she was a part of, she would come and hang out with some of the group of friends that I would hang out with from time to time. And um, so they gave us a debrief on the situation, recently found out that she was pregnant. Um, and the meeting here was to decide whether or not she should be expelled from the school for breaking the covenant agreement that she signed as a part of the, the school's policy. Now, a lot of this young woman's future is literally in our hands. What happens in this moment can decide so much of what happens in her future. And, and, um, and it's messy because the father, did, he was not a part of the school, didn't make any of the agreements that, that she made in the midst of this. He's not present or in the picture at all. Mom's there, doesn't know Jesus, even though this is a small Christian school, right? And so what she's like, I don't even get why this thing that happened in her life over here has anything to do with their education, I'm gonna sue you if you expel her. And she's yelling, the young lady is crying, there's shame, there's tears, there's anger, the tension is incredibly high, and so there's a point where they dismiss everyone and it's just the group of people making the decisions. So after hearing the account, they're deliberating for just a little bit and decided as soon as the door shuts, and, and granted this professor was kind of, uh, she, she's rugged, like she, she was known for being pretty harsh. As soon as the door shuts, she said, well, this is an open and shut case of another student pregnancy. We should expel her. I'm like, whoa, that's insane that you just did that that quick. And then there's like, well, hold up, you know, and then the counterbalance, you got the shepherding kind of figure in the room. And I'm pretty intimidated in this room. This is the first time I've ever been a part of something like this. And as they're talking about all the details, I'm realizing that they've been through this many more seasons than I have. Eventually, the group decides that they are going to um, expel her with one caveat, which is this. We had a chapel. And when I say small, I'm talking like 300 people at this school. This is a very small school. 300 people at this chapel, if she is willing to go up in front of chapel and confess to what she has done in front of the whole school, then we'll let her finish the classes off-site because we want to show some grace. We don't want to have people asking her who the dad is and all the questions for the next nine months. Do you see how weird and twisted that is? And as a, as a young leader, all I'm thinking in my head is I have no clue what I've gotten myself into. And I'm not for sure that this person should be expelled. I don't necessarily agree, but I realize I'm the only person. And so in that moment, it's like I think everyone agrees we should do it. I'm the last person to vote. And I'm like, I mean, I guess if, the, if this is, if everyone here is in agreement and I'm the only outlier in this moment, I, I, I'm going to have to lean on your wisdom. And so the young lady was expelled. I don't know, like six, seven, eight, nine Eight or nine years later, I'm at a Starbucks. We've gone to New Orleans, moved back to Phoenix. And I run into this young woman as uh, nine years later um, at a Starbucks. And I'm like embarrassed. I'm ducking. I don't want her to say, she's like, Eric? 
Yeah, oh, hey, hey, right? Like, hey, she's in scrubs. I'm like, how's it going? What's new? She comes to me and she starts talking. She's like, I know this is probably awkward, but um, this, this is, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't feel bad about what happened. I, I know, I knew you, and I know that that was kind of like you got grabbed out of nowhere. And I will be honest, like, I walked away from God for so many years because of that situation. Um, and she said, but I want you to know that at some point God made sense of that, and I actually came to know God. And it was something I see as a, as a, as a course correction in my life, though I don't agree with the way it happened. She made sense of it. I'm not making sense of their leadership decision. I'm saying, in God's grace, she made sense of that. And now her daughter is 9, 10 years old, and she works as a nurse inside of the pregnancy ward. And she says, I often have the opportunity with my witness and my testimony to help women who are in the same situation as me. So you see this powerful redemption moment because there's so many things I can point to in there that's like, that was a bad situation. That shouldn't have happened. Oh, something needs to happen here. I don't know. She did sign the contract. Well, this person doesn't even know why this is even happening. And then it all just seems so messy and convoluted. And in the end, I got to have one of those few opportunities where I saw that God used it for redeeming purposes. It's confusing. It's messy. And maybe you have a story of your own. This is my point. This stuff is not as easy to walk through as you might think. And so many of us, I think when you hear that, you know, just correct the person in the error of their ways. At some point, you have to understand that this whole thing is complicated and difficult, way more awkward in the conversations, way messier in these real lives being lived. And sometimes God, even in the mess, makes something good out of it. Now, I want to surface two ideas, observations. We're going to jump into a little bit of Jesus, and then we'll come back and close it up. Two observations here from the text is that when it says you, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander, it's referring specifically to the brothers and sisters being addressed. All right? So these are people who were in the fold of God but have departed. So we should read it as if any believer from your community should wander from the truth. And the reason I want to make um, that point is because often we try to hold people who don't consider themselves Christians accountable to Christian ethics, ideas, morality, and, and even denominational ideas, right? And that's not what we're called to do. This has to do with inside the family, though we should still be concerned for the lost. Second is this phrase, wander from the truth, is really significant. Because it isn't referring to someone who just kind of casually drifted at sea, passively moving away at their intended course, you know? It's not like you made a wrong turn as you're driving somewhere, Surrey got you off track, and now you're trying to figure out how to get back on track. This has a connotation of intentionality. I want to give you two examples from the scriptures here, because it refers to any kind of deviation from the truth or the faith. So to wander means to disbelieve or move away. Second Timothy, this isn't going to be there, I'll just read it out to you. Second Timothy 3, 12 and 13 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go or wander, that's the same word, will wander on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Second Peter 2, 15 says, Forsaking the right way, they have wandered, gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam and of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. If you're Balaam and Beor in this time, Peter called you out. (laughs) 
So do you see what's happening here isn't just a casual, accidental wandering, which we're all um, very possibly doing at any given season in our life. But I want to bring it into even more, a believer that's moving gladly on a deviant path towards sin. Someone who is divergent from the truth, who loves gain from wrongdoing. They're choosing between following God or following something else. And listen, don't lie to yourself and act like you haven't been there. We've all been there. It's easy to read this and point it at them, those people who, and start thinking of all the people who we know who have wandered or have walked away from the truth. When I want you to see every one of us has been through a season of that, you maybe didn't tell anyone. Or maybe the cultural expectations of your family, your church, your culture uh, allowed you to stay within the group while your mind wandered and you've come back, or maybe not. But if we're all honest, we've all been here. We've all had our seasons of wandering, and we've all needed help. It doesn't matter if you're two weeks in, if you're two years, if you're 20 years down this faith path. That's why we sing the words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we pray, God, take my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. God, I need your help to stay on course if I'm ever going to have a hope of doing this. So we walk into this humbly knowing that this is for us as much as it is for others. And here's where we get to do a little bit of abstract thinking. I want to pull in some of the allusions that James is making for us in the middle of this. He says, it says this, if you remember a couple of verses away, I should have had it on here on call, but uh, a couple of verses previous to the one we just read, he alludes to Elijah as a great person of prayer. But this is also what he's doing. He's referring like a hyperlink online, right, to the entire story of what Elijah did. And what happened in that time is that the entire people of God wandered from him. Not just one person, not just a solo person. The entire group wandered from Yahweh and were double-minded in their choices. I read this last week, but I think it's worth reading again. 1 Kings 18.21 described it like this. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. They were unwilling to correct their double-mindedness. So, so here's my point. The struggle and temptation of double-mindedness is very real. It was so real that it happened in ancient times with Elijah in the confrontation of Jezebel through the Old Testament and her prophets. It surfaces here with James as he says, this is not different than Elijah's situation then. It's relevant to him now, and he's writing and comparing his people that he's writing to directly to the people in the days of Elijah. And this temptation will continue into the end of the age. How do I know that? Because Revelations 2 says this to the church of Thyatira. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are not doing more than, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By, teach, by her teaching, she misleads the servants into sexual immorality and eating of foods of sacrificed idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. Now, catching, I'm, I'm very aware of how many uh, misogynist ideologies have been disguised by this verse, all right? Don't, don't, don't think that that's past me. Like, I get that that's going on and how quickly people just want to throw the spirit of Jezebel at any person they don't like that they're doing, at any woman that they don't like what they're doing. That's not what I'm doing here. 
But I do want you to see that this idea, she represents an age back in Elijah that's now, pre- preparing, uh, that's now presenting itself in James and is something that is very real, that we will be enticed over and over to say that we will trust in other gods and not just Yahweh himself. All of this, listen, all, amen, all of this is packed into two lines that I just read. It's been a temptation for me not to dig into it earlier, but I had to do it because it's the last day of James, so here it is. But hear it. Knowing this temptation is ancient and future, he says, I'm going to give you a lifeline. Think of it like that little safety flotation device on your cruise or yacht or whatever crazy thing it is you all do on your vacations. You throw it out at a pool. If someone's drowning, you say, hey, you need help. You need to get to the shore. I'm going to pull this thing back in. I'm going to help you out in the midst of this. This is a lifeline that is the communal assurance. And let me read it in this context. If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Please frame this like this. Please understand the grace and the beauty that James is trying to give us at the end of his very specific and very checklist feeling kind of orientation that at the end he's like, man, I know this is hard. So I'm going to throw out a lifeline and tell you what the community is supposed to do when you inevitably wander. A couple of things I want you to notice, and here's where we start to get practical. Verse 20 does not give this as an encouragement to the wanderer to suddenly recognize the error of their ways and then get themselves back on track. Instead, it is an encouragement to the community to become a seek and rescue force to bring back those who are waiting in the death and the sin around them. James is with urgency crying, I don't want that to happen to you. I know it's hard to live up to these things. I don't want you to be like those who have been swayed, like in the days of Jezebel. And James is almost definitely drawing from the ministry and teaching of Jesus. Now I'm going to, I have two verses, but I'm going to skip over one up there. I just want to jump to Luke 15, 3 and 7 um, and, and skip over Matthew 18 just for time's sake. But listen to the way Jesus handles this. Luke 15, 3 and 7. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't, leave the 90, doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after his lost sheep until he finds it? And then when he finds it, he joyfully puts the sheep on his shoulders. He goes home and he calls his friends and all of his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent, who do not need to repent. So he rejoices. This is the heart of the shepherd, the one who puts the animal, the lost person, the, the, this, this helpless being on his shoulders and comes back rejoicing and isn't content just to party alone. He's like, I need you and you and you. My sheep has come home. 
And angels are rejoicing over this situation. They're invited to rejoice too. And I love the way one theologian adds to this parable. He writes, the most, uh, says most people believe it was good of Jesus to retrieve the one because of the one's inability to exist outside the comfort, protection, and direction of the flock. While this is not an erroneous interpretation, I believe the parable has a much deeper meaning. Listen to this. The one sheep did not merely miss out on the benefits of the flock far more significantly. The 99 were incomplete without the one. As much as Jesus blessed the one by bringing him back into the fellowship with the 99, perhaps his greater motivation was to bless and solidify the 99. Y'all, we're not complete without the one. Now, if that sounded familiar, it's a direct quote from our very own Pastor Kenneth Rush in his book, <laughs> People Proof. We were talking about this, and he brought this up, and I thought it was so powerful, so significant that we would think through that idea that it's not just for them, but it's for us. So God's heart for the wandering and for the lost is like a shepherd and a father who rejoices when they come home. I want to bring it back real quick to Matthew 18, and then we'll be done. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, then you have won them over. But if, you w if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And it comes right after Matthew's account of the same parable. So the directive is that when we confront somebody, it would not be out of spite. The directive is that when we confront, it would not be out of revenge, it would not be out of a desire to see somebody punished, but out of a care for our brothers and sisters and the lost. And God details this process designed to escalate only at the rate to which it mirrors the level of resistance. If there is any, you might get lucky enough to say, I receive your rebuke. You might get lucky. But if it doesn't, it says, okay, only then do you escalate that situation and bring someone else into this. You try to keep it as managed as possible, as peaceful as possible, as respectful as possible. And so do we as a church care enough to confront? And this is what I mean. I, I love a good old X and Y axis, so there's a picture to accompany this. How much do you care well, there's a lot there. Maybe we'll post this later. But I want you to see that center one. Are you assertive as a confrontational person? Think about that answer right now. Do you tend to move towards confrontation or not? Do you tend to avoid confrontation? Do you have a low level of care in the situation and for the person? Do you have a high level of care for the situation and the person? Because look at that top left. If you are assertive and confronting but you don't care, all you are is a punisher. We don't want punishers. You just want the person to pay for their offense. If you have a low level of a care, but you want to avoid the confrontation, what that tells me is you're an avoider. You have very little concern that need, to neither confront nor care for the person. That bottom right enabler, if you have a lot of care for the person, you avoid confrontation, then you probably find yourself enabling the things that they're doing. You deny the confrontation, you allow the person to be comforted by the sin in which they're engaging. And what we're asking for in that top right is to become a high-level, assertive, not desiring confrontation. I hope none of us are in that category. But that we don't avoid it, but that we become reconcilers. We seek after, move towards somebody to restore that offender and to correct 
the offenses when they take place. Um, my, my urge to you as we close today, and then I want to do one quick kind of liturgical thing at the end and bless us according to what James has taught. Be a part of James's search and rescue party. It's a part of our role as Christians. We should have forward motion, not passive, and we take on the responsibility by being a part of a community to act on behalf of the wanderer. That we have to make the goal the goal and nothing else. The goal is reconciliation. If you're in a confrontation situation, you are not there to punish them. And I heard someone say this a long time ago. If you want to be the person to confront them, you are probably not the right person to confront them. And you need to opt out of the situation. Does that make sense? Let someone else handle it. You are too invested somehow in a wrong way. Sometimes you are wrong when you go to confront someone, right? I don't always want to take the position that whoever that community is is in the right because I've been in those situations that to this day I look back, I'm like, I don't, I don't agree that what that was was, was a good uh, uh, type of correction. And I hope that our administration, our leadership, our elders would also have a heart of humility in that situation. One, uh, one on the flip side is that if you are confronted, could we try to become the I, 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 uh, I receive your rebuke kind of person? Don't get defensive. Listen, always pray. God, is there something that I'm not seeing that you need to correct here? Clarification is good, but don't try to justify the offense, right? Impact is often greater than intent. So no matter what you meant, you have to keep in mind, especially when there was someone hurt on the other side, that that impact still plays whether you intended for it or not. It's helpful to perspective shift. And that there's this idea that we get to collaborate possibly on the reconciliation process, but we don't get to control the reconciliation process. We've talked about this before, but there's been times in my life when I needed correction, and when that person came to me to correct me, they didn't say, how do you think you should get back on course? They said, nope, I need you to call me at 10 and tell me where you're at. I need you to do this thing right here. I need you to do this. I want you to uh, make sure that you're checking in with me regularly, and we're going to have an accountability every single week. Oh, you don't want to do that? Then this isn't going to work for me. So don't try to control that. You've already, I'll, I'll say in my situation, I already, I had already realized that I was not, I was blind in some areas, and I needed to submit to that person's authority to help bring me back on course. Um, and then finally, just this idea of public and private. I believe, um, and it's always been taught to me, that if, uh, if an offense happens in private, try to settle it privately. Uh, but if a, an offense happens up here, like say from a pulpit, um, and, and I say something that is offensive, then I believe that apology should come from the same platform. I just think it makes a lot of sense, right? And, uh, and I'm, this isn't me gearing up for some big apology. I don't have anything big to apologize for, all right? Not setting the stage for that. But I have had to do that. Elder Doom and one of our former elders, Dwayne, confronted me and said, you have to do something about this next time. So I came up here and I publicly apologized for not handling a situation well. I think that that's just the risk I take for being in this position. And there's a risk in all the positions you all take when you take on leadership, when you are just in community with believers that says as private and as public as the offense happens, so should the correction be in the midst of that. Um, and, and let me remind you maybe in this last thing, not all people come home. Not all correction is ever received. We don't always get the happy ending, and God gives us something for that as a last resort. 
you can kick the dust off of your feet and walk away from the situation. That's what Luke 10 tells us. 1 Corinthians says, hand this person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that the spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. But let me show you in the midst of that, even that was for correction. The hope is still that they would come back to know God. Don't stop praying for that person though. I have some resources because I know this is kind of like a bigger topic and we could probably do workshops on reconciliation processes. So I want to show you um, just this, this quick thing. There's something called Peace Pursuit. It's a simple way to engage. A mission agency called Frontiers put it out and I got to go through it at one point. It helps you do resolution on a one-to-one conflict or in a larger kind of conflict situation or when somebody has walked away from the faith. And so I want to tell you Peace Pursuit. If you're interested in that, you can download a PDF that's just a quick little thing. A couple of their resources are free. So I would definitely recommend them that. And um, I want you to know reconciliation is a powerful way to end this letter. If you see all that, that he has tried to accomplish, James has tried to accomplish, it shows that there's a pastoral heart behind all the things that James has been striving to bring our hearts into alignment with God and his people. And that we should now take on that same pastoral heart as we move forward. And so this is how I would like to end this series. Um, And if you'll give me just a couple more minutes, uh, I just want to do this kind of liturgical response. Since we tend to think of these as checkboxes, what I want to do is to reform these in the the form of a blessing. And I want to pray that blessing over every single one of us, that it would be something that would be true of us through the Holy Spirit. And to do that, I'm going to ask you all to stand up really quick. You can go ahead and have the the team go ahead and come up if you all want to start playing. The other thing I'm going to ask you is a posture of reception, if you're willing to and able. Would you just put your hands out like this, open-handed, palms up as a reception. And I'm just going to pray each of these lessons over us. And when I say you, I mean we. I hope you know that. May you consider it all joy in the trials and temptations that you encounter, Common Ground Northeast. May you be doers and not just hearers of God's word and be obedient to his direction. May you display mercy instead of judgment and show favor to no person regardless of their age, ability, ethnicity, or socioeconomic status. May your faith be made alive through the deeds and works that you accomplish. May your tongue proclaim blessing upon blessing instead of curse, setting wildfires of goodwill, uplifting messages to all that you encounter. May you seek hard after true wisdom and be safeguarded from that which is false. May you emancipate instead of oppress, setting the captives free as Jesus was called to do when you encounter inequity. May you have patience in the midst of any and all suffering. May you display faithfulness in your prayers and supplications for healing and miracles, deliverance, and all that God might have you do. May you be a restorer of those who wander from the faith. May you be a seeker of the lost in our day. May our hearts be open to rebuke when we must be corrected. And finally, may God keep us who are prone to wander when we fall short so that we would praise God for being the one who does not give up on us, on the one. Instead, he is faithful to lead all back to the fold of God. And one day, maybe it'll be our turn to be restored. Father, make this true of us. Lift our hearts, our minds, our souls to the grace of who we are and that we would be receptive to all it is that you have for us. We love you, Jesus. Thank you 
for making caveats to even our shortcomings. You already prepared a way to bring us back knowing we couldn't do it. So we thank you for that. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.